you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome back, one and all. It feels a bit like summer is over, so let's call this the Back to Work special. We're here to update you about anything you've missed while catching a tan or catching a storm if you're listening from the UK or California. In part one, I'm joined by the Lodestar's Mike Wackett and TAC Index's Neil Wilson, when we'll be looking at the biggest stories of the summer, air and ocean freight rates, the peak season, liner consolidation, and Panama Canal water levels. And in part two, we have an ocean freight forwarder round table, if that's actually possible with just three people. We're looking at everything from exports in Asia to US intermodal costs, the threat of yet more union disruption at ports and the outlook for the trans-Pacific trade. From Singapore, I'll be joined by VC Logistics' Peter Sundara Swamikanu. And from Renus Logistics, calling in from the US, it's the irrepressible Stephanie Loomis. The carriers are not scrapping enough old capacity and they've got to ramp that up or, in my opinion, 2024, it could end up being another bloodbath as far as very low rate levels, very low contract rates. I don't think that volumes are going to come back until probably peak season of 2024. And even then, I wonder how strong they will be. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Is summer really over? It's certainly feeling like it is at the start of September here in rainy London. Anyway, enough of that. As ever, before we get going, it would be remiss of me not to remind you that you can find this podcast on all platforms. Please give us a great review and follow us if you would. We're also on the lodestar.com where you can follow breaking supply chain news stories from around the world every day. And you can contact me with thoughts and theories at mikeking121 at gmail.com. Let's get cracking as trailed. In part two, I'm joined by two luminaries of the ocean freight forwarding sector in the shape of Stephanie Loomis, head of ocean freight in the Americas at Renus Logistics, and Peter Sundara Swamikanu, head of global ocean freight product at VC Logistics. We'll be looking at both ends of the trans-Pacific trade, and I can promise you that neither Peter or Steph are short on opinions. Certainly not about how you should be managing supply chain risk, what happened to the peak season, and what to expect from carriers and freight markets as we hurtle towards China's golden week shutdown at the start of October. But before we hear from the shipping coalface, let's look at rates and the biggest stories in the news right now. And to do this, I'm joined by two evergreens of media and trade. They both come with sizable journalistic backstories combined with the ability to turn their respective hands to a bit of analysis with equal utility. First up, we have Lodestar podcast debutants and the editor, and I think we can probably call him a chief analyst at TAC Index. It's Neil Wilson. Welcome, Neil. Hello, Mike. Thank you for having me on board. You know, you're very welcome. Uh, and joining us, Neil, is uh, a man who needs no introduction to regular listeners. It's former shipping executive and Lodestar's box line guru, Mike Wackett. Welcome back, Mike. How's your summer been? Thank you, Mike. Great to be back on the podcast. Summer was good. I spent a week or so melting in Italy at 40 degrees, came back to dear old Blighty for some much needed rain, but the novelty wore off after a few days, I have to say. So, so it has been a, quite a strange summer of extremes. And uh, in the UK, I think we wiped out July mostly. Lastly, in August, it's warming up a bit. I, I was over in the Med as well, actually. I ended up in a a small cove on a Greek island called Paxos last week, in fact, where there was a, a super yacht owned by uh, Juan Luigi Aponte, the octogenarian mastermind behind MSC, which, of course, is now the world's largest container line. I mean, I say it was Aponte. It, it was a superboat called Ammo registered to him. It looked like something off James Bond. And I did go and ask the yacht's crew if I could get an interview. There was no response, which is normally the answer I get whenever I ask MSC for an interview anyway. Which brings me to my first question, Mike, about liner shipping. The Lodestar, of course, puts out a list of most read stories each week, and many of them are being crafted by your good self. 
this last month or so, many of them have been on the same theme. Let's call it container line consolidation. First up of these interlinked stories, HMM, the famous Korean carrier, which according to Alphaliner is the eighth largest by capacity with 2.9% of the global fleet. Is it up for sale? And if so, why? And what's all this about Hapag Lloyd, which is the fifth largest carrier looking to take it over? Yes, I think it's definitely up for sale, Mike. What happens with HMM or Hyundai Merchant Marine, as it was known then, was that effectively it was rescued by the Korean government in 2016 with a debt restructuring after its compatriot Hanyan Shipping had gone uh, tits up. And it was quite interesting because I was actually in Korea at around about the time that Hanyan Shipping was going. I mean, they had something like about 100 ships at anchor everywhere with people trying to arrest cargoes, etc. But the Koreans thought even two weeks after they pulled the rug that something was going to happen, that the government would step in. So it was an extremely embarrassing situation for the Korean nation. And therefore, I think really it prompted them to really put all the regs into the HMM basket with this big investment and bailout, basically, which included the purchase of some ultra-large container ships and eventually getting themselves into an alliance initially with the 2M as a sort of a, a slot based operator, and then eventually in the actual the alliance as, as a partner. But from 2016 until the pandemic, HMM had not made a bean. They'd lost an awful lot of money. So obviously, as we all know, the silver line in the pandemic was for the carriers to make billions of profits. So it seems really an opportune time really for the Korean government or state-owned organizations that own 60% or roughly 60% of HMM to offload and cash in. I mean, we're talking about, I think they're looking for something around about 4 billion for their share. There's five bidders, which although it's never officially been confirmed, Hapag Lloyd is one of them. For Hapag Lloyd, it would make sense because they're in the same alliance. HMM have 12, 24,000 ultra-large vessels. And they just happen to have something like seven billion on their balance sheet. So really, it's almost organic growth. But having said that, we again, it's been reported, it's not been confirmed, but Hapag Lloyd have apparently been excluded from the next round of this bid, basically on political grounds. One of the quotes I, I pulled it out just a second ago, actually, this is from the Federation of Korea Maritime Industries and, and the Busan Port Development Council. Selling HMM to Habag Lloyd could lead to an overseas leakage of Korea's priceless national assets, such as maritime logistics know-how, accumulated for decades, and container transportation and terminal system management. So clearly there's, um, I think politically, it ain't going to happen, this one. And I think if you hark back to when the embarrassment of Han Yin going down and HMM becoming effectively the flag line of Korea. I think Hapag Lloyd is chancing their arm, but I don't think it's, it's going that way, going to Hamburg. It's where these huge profits that the lines racked up during the COVID era is going to be something we'll be continuing to watch on Lodestar, because that is one of the big factors that's going to really be uh, shaping some container markets. And I think it possibly ties into the other story I wanted to ask you about Mike, because the container market itself is changing very quickly and all these lines are in slightly different positions. Now, Zim charted a lot of tonnage at very high rates during COVID, but now it's increasing cooperation with MSC. What's going on there? Are these stories linked? And in fact, is all of this linked into these changes in the market itself? Because we did see in the second quarter that the top carrier's net income fell year on year to a, a measly $8.9 billion, according to John McCown's excellent analysis. Is this all tied in? Yes, definitely. Zim is a classic example of it. In fact, in Q2, they actually lost something like about $130 million, I think it was. Uh, no, $162 million in Q2. And I think importantly is that their guidance for the year is for an EBIT loss of up to $500 million. And I think that's really what all the carriers are saying is that the second half of the year is really going to be at best break even and could be worse in case of, of Zim. I mean, Zim has 130 ships 
580,000 TU. And, and most of those ships are chartered. Some are long-term chartered at, at relatively high rates. They've also got quite a huge order book of something like 300,000 TU, all of which have been long-term chartered. So clearly there's some, they call it structural changes, but it's restructuring that they're going through. And one of the ways of doing that is to, obviously you can off-hire a ship if it's come to the end of its charter period, but if it ain't, then you've got to hang on to it. It's a bit like having a lease car for three years and going back after two years and saying, can I get rid of it? The answer is no. So what they have been doing is to sublet or relet some of these ships whilst the market was reasonably good. And although in certain cases they're earning less for them that they're actually paying, it does mitigate some of their liabilities. I think what we're seeing here with MSC is firstly in Oceana, where they've effectively getting rid of 10 smaller ships by going into this cooperation with MSC. And then also just this week, the new cooperation on North Europe to, to the Med, a, a similar sort of deal there, really, which means if you go into a vessel sharing agreement, the other partner, in this case, MSC, is taking some of the ships. So it means they're reducing their fleet requirement and those ships they can try to get rid of on the relet market. And more of this to come, do you think? In certain cases, I think some of the smaller carriers will suffer. The bigger ones, they'll plough through it as they always do. But I think there'll be a lot more strain on these smaller, medium-sized carriers as time goes on. Thank you, Mike. Neil, what was the story that has really stood out for you in terms of air cargo? That maybe tells us where the market is right now. Thank you, Mike. I think one of the things that stood out for me in the last month or so was the uh, Lufthansa cargo performance numbers, which really I think everybody commented on outperformed the, the rest of the sector in a period when we've had you know, capacity being too high, rates continue to fall. I'll come on to where rates have been going a bit later. But on this particular story, it's interesting because the obviously the German economy is not in a good place, which is something else I'll come back to. But they had this strategy, which they, they talked quite a bit about at the at the Munich Air Cargo Europe event just uh, at the beginning of the summer, of focusing on e-commerce, digitalization, and short-haul Europe uh, business. And that seems to be working for them. It seems to be working. It's um, certainly in a period when capacity's gone up, they've done relatively well. I think it's been more of a challenge particularly for the operators who run dedicated freighters. And if, if you think back of, um, in previous weeks, the big players like FedEx cutting the capacity, others, small players like Jet1X parking their fleets. I think, you know, particularly as we've also seen more latterly, jet fuel prices really spiking again, particularly in the last month or so. I think that puts pressure, particularly on those who've got older, less fuel efficient kind of fleets. So it's what, well, some sources tell us that it's a survival of the fittest test who's going to come through this kind of period. Against that, the thing to bear in mind, I suppose, is the passenger traffic side has been very strong. It's been a very good summer for passenger traffic. And so for those uh, operators like Lufthansa who do a lot of passenger planes, then the air cargo piece is probably less less of a crucial thing than it was certainly in the pandemic than it has been recently. So yeah, so that Lufthansa performance really stands up. And you mentioned rates there, Neil. How have they been generally performing over the summer? Have any lanes been booking those downward trends according to TAC Index's numbers? Yes. I think overall, if you look at the, the overall Baltic uh, Air Freight Index, which is an index of all, all routes, it's been drifting. It's been kind of a period of what we describe as sort of summer doldrums. It's often quiet in the summer anyway, quiet. Uh, and if you look at August through until 28th, at least, uh, the four weeks there was... Market was down overall about three and a half percent, which um, took it to a year-on-year decline of forty-five point nine. So, quite a chunky decline over the year. But it seems to be flattening out. The rates of decline has flattened out. So, yeah, people are asking, "Are we near the bottom? Is it going to bounce again?" Within the the, the different lanes and the, the different uh, major hubs for, for traffic, one standout I would say is Hong Kong, which was up over the month two point two percent in August and is down only forty percent for the year on year, so less than the rest of the market. I think it derives from the kind of e-commerce theme, which I mentioned before, e-commerce particularly strong up Southern China. 
and the routes from Hong Kong, they, they call, the indexes up for the outbound routes. They've been up to Europe, to the US, and also intra Asia. Everything out of Hong Kong has been going on. Southern China has been strong. Shanghai has also been quite strong. And some other routes around the US and America. But Europe in general has been pretty weak. Rates have been dropping out of Frankfurt, London, and, and elsewhere, you know, flat to down, flat to down, single pitch. Flat to down, did you say? Flat to down. <laughs> Neil, how do these rates compare to pre-COVID for a bit of perspective? Well, very briefly, and you know, rates are obviously down a lot, like two thirds, three quarters from the from the COVID peak in all main markets, really. But in the most important routes, China, US, and China, Europe, they're still comfortably above where they were in 2019. That's still the case. Not the case in some of the less important routes, but that was, we need to remember, a pretty low point. 2019 was not a great time. So it's not a great comparison, though we are still comfortably above it. Mike, flat to down, is that shipping rates or is that up to buffering downwards, I guess? And let me just add there, we'll be talking to two of the world's best known ocean freight forwarders in part two. We'll be looking at the Trans-Pacific. So if your analysis could focus elsewhere, Mike, that would be brilliant. Yes, well, let's start with Asia, Europe. And just looked at Zenitor's XSI this week, and that's down 4%. So we're talking $1,525 per 40 foot. Putting that into context, that's something like 80% lower than this time last year. Mike, so that's basically the last week of August. We're talking at the start of September, yeah, when you took week on week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what we're seeing is I've got some reports through from China. Some of the export loaders were utilization levels were down something like to 82%, something like that. And you're talking in the periods here, we've got a Something like, what's it, four weeks or less? Yeah, four weeks until the um, Golden Week holiday in China, which is generally a build-up period, generally when demand is strong and rates are up. But rates are heading south. And so what I've seen this week is just an avalanche of blankings and cancellations and, and everything else. So, so really, I think there is quite some concern there for North Europe. Also, the Med, I mean, that's been much more robust than North Europe hitherto. But this week, MSC announced they were blanking three consecutive sailings of their standalone Dragon service due to weaker demand. Rates there, Zemsa's rates were pretty flat in that area. But effectively, you're talking about a premium of around about $400, $500 on North Europe. But I can see that eroding as the weeks happen, because what you've seen is the number of carriers have pumped more capacity into that route, sensing a bit of extra revenue. And of course, the the obvious situation we have is up see there's not enough to go around, so rates go down. Of particular concern, looking again at Zensa's rates for this first week in September, they were down another four and a half percent on the transatlantic. So that's $1,400 for a 40-foot. And that, you know, what you're seeing there is, is just a total crash. A year ago, rates were up to around about eight, $9,000 a 40-foot. And historically, rates on that route have been quite robust, quite stable at around about $2,000 a 40-foot. So now we're getting into dangerous territory where they won't be covering their operating costs. Carriers have put more capacity on. There's been new entrants into the market. So that market doesn't look very good at all. So, Mike, what sounds what you're saying there, and I don't know if you've got any volume data. That's a, It's a bit early for August, and we've had some predictions in the US about August volumes being quite high from Hackett Associates. But does this mean that the peak season came early? Is there anything left? If we're not building up for Golden Week now, does that mean it's done, dusted, all, all over? Well, the words that were being used quite a lot for the describing the peak season was subdued, modest, and I saw the Wall Street Journal saying, arriving with a whimper. I, th I think the peak season has a better chance in the US than it does in North Europe. They seem to have got their inflation a bit better under control, and they have a habit of not being too worried about maxing out their credit cards. But I think consumers in North Europe are really being hit in every single way with inflation, with higher interest rates, 14 consecutive rises by the Bank of England. And really, you, you can't see really where that demand is coming from. I mean, going into the stores, you can see 
the shelves are already stocked with Halloween stuff. They're already stocked with Christmas stuff. So I think they've got everything in. There's no shortages. And obviously retailers are, are really being a bit careful with their inventories. They don't want to get stuck as they have before with very, very highly stocked warehouses and, and inventories. So really, after the Golden Week holiday, it's a wonder where there's going to be any demand at all. Obviously, there will be, but the prospects do not look right. As you say, those inventory levels are proving pretty critical. There's no way of finding this out in the data, but I'd love to know how much of that Halloween and Christmas stuff is actually last year's stock. Because one of the big issues, particularly in the US, is how quickly has any of these inventories been whittled away? It seems like this stockpile that we've had that goes back to COVID really has never gone away. Obviously, things are a lot worse in Europe, but those import markets are struggling as well. We've got high inflation. We've got the switch in consumption from services to products. Neil, you mentioned earlier that the outlook for Germany, which is obviously this real engine of European trade in the past, it's really, it's pretty poor at the moment, isn't it? But let's turn to China, if we may, where a lot of the new export orders and purchasing managers index data is, is pretty discouraging. What's your take, Neil, on where China is at the moment and what that might tell us about global freight markets? Okay, well, I do have some things to say on the US and uh, Europe as well, but I'll start with China. Obviously, we do look at the macro picture and how this is a, a driver for the activity in air cargo. And what you see when you look at that is that the growth rate has been disappointing. The, the kind of rebound that people were expecting after the COVID restrictions were eased hasn't really been as strong as people were hoping for and expecting. The, the economy is struggling to get to the 5% GDP growth targets. In the background, there's all of these things that happened following the COVID period with onshoring, nearshoring, reshoring, and companies moving business or supply chains closer to where they want to be delivered. I think what that's meant is that China has been losing investment flows. It's still obviously a huge exporter, the most important exporter in the world by a long way, but its growth does seem to be being hit. And you can see that in things like very high youth unemployment. Um, so much so that the statistics seem to have been discontinued, which is also quite unhelpful, I think, because it doesn't really help boost confidence if the Chinese don't really show how bad they are. And then I suppose there, there's property market problems as well, which is a, a lot of the growth of China has been driven by investment in the property sector. And it, it's now in, in great difficulty where some of the hot markets, the cost of renting is higher than it was in Tokyo in the 80s by some measures in relative to incomes. And in some of the weaker markets, the tier three, four cities, the vacancy rates are enormous. You can't fill property. So you see big property companies like Evergrande, obviously, filing for bankruptcy protection in the US. That's a huge borrower. Other Chinese property developers in the same problems. And so there's this need, I think, for decisive action. The Chinese authorities have said they're going to do it. But so far, the market has been underwhelmed by the response. And in the last month or so, equity markets around the world have come down. Now, obviously, the background, if you want me to go on to, to the Western picture, the, the US, I think you've already talked, you might talk correctly about inventories being very, very high and have been forever. You've both come to all that. The US demand has actually held up pretty well, despite the steep rise in interest rates. People have run down the savings they, put, they added in the COVID period um, and have kept spending by borrowing more, it seems. But those higher interest rates and you know, inverted yield curve attempt to get with that they tend to result in recession in the end. So the picture there isn't looking brilliant, um, although it's done better than expected so far. And I think in Europe, obviously, there's been the impact of the Ukraine war. Everybody's well aware of that, uh, higher energy prices, and particularly big impact on Germany, which is a key economy, having been so dependent on Russian gas, cut its nuclear power. And so Germany's struggled with that. It's, it's done well to cope with things relatively perhaps, and the European economy more broadly has, but with no growth in Germany, then that's a pretty weak background for Europe as well. So we really need China to get back to its kind of growth pattern to drive global growth as it has done for the last couple of decades. I think this geopolitical uncertainty has been one of the themes of 2023, and it, it does make analysis of a lot of other things quite difficult. But let's try and simplify it, shall we? There are some analysts, Neil, saying that export declines have probably bottomed out. Is this good news for a Q4 peak season for air cargo, would you say? Having said all those negative things just now, <laughs> which and I know it's both, both Mike and I have said, you know, that the market's been obviously saying flat today on the air cargo and dropping like a stone on the shipping side, it seems. I think the macro picture may not be quite as bleak as it seems to be. We do have um, weak demand. We have continuing overcapacity. 
pick on the Aircargo side. But despite that, I mean, I think there are also some significant new product launches. And despite the inventories being high, if there are new widgets being produced that need to be moved, then that can drive demand. And so there is still some optimism uh, with product launches that people know are coming up, September, uh, this month onwards, that some sort of peak season might be possible. Last year, I think we made the comment that it came with a whimper last year. And I think that Wall Street Journal making the same prediction this time. It may, it may be with a whimper, but it, last year there was no peak season at all. This year, there might be a, a, a slight rise, perhaps, and we'll see. Something that might help air cargo here. Mike, what's the latest on the Panama Canal? We've got El Nino effect kicking off, which is due to get worse later in the year. We're causing drought in Central America and elsewhere. How are water levels and what's this doing to container shipping right now? Well, container shipping actually is, is not as impacted as you would expect because it, container ships do get priority. They tend to book their slots when in advance and it's an operational thing. So basically, its draft has to be reduced. So effectively, you're talking about that ships loading 10 to 15% less cargo and possibly refusing heavy boxes as well. Obviously, that hits the bottom line of carriers and They've tried to implement various different surcharges, some of which have stuck, some of which haven't. But it hasn't really impacted container shipping that much so far. And obviously, there is another choice, and that's through the Suez Canal. That's taken the Suez Canal route. That would probably take another five to six days on average. But obviously, they've got plenty of ships to do that. And it could well be good news for the U.S. West Coast ports, who have just recently... Labour force have just recently ratified their new contract. So that should all be tickety-boo on, on that side for the next four or five years, I guess. And there will be cargo. Actually, the cargo shift will be easing somewhat from the west to the east coast, and maybe it will start to head into the reverse in some ways. But what I'm hearing from a number of different carriers is it's not impacting them that much at the moment. As you mentioned there, things have eased on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, we've got potential union action at ports or at least negotiations about a new contract, which I'll be discussing in part two in a bit more depth. Neil, final word for you. What gives uh, air cargo a bit more of a bump if it's not the Panama Canal disruption that Mike's just explained? It's probably not going to hit container shipping as much as maybe bulk carriers or tankers. Well, I think that there's two things that might be positive. One is that the steep drop has been there, we'll see some kind of shakeout on the capacity side. I mean, particularly the older, less fuel efficient, dedicated carriers. And then there's continued secular growth in some segments of the market. Obviously, things like pharma have dropped back a bit post the pandemic, but e-commerce continues to grow very strongly. But, you know, without that, then the market being in a pretty bad place. The other thing that underpins it, I think, is this passenger traffic. So on the passenger traffic side, it's been very strong over the last period, over the summer period, and that will have boosted the profitability of the airlines, even if it's weaker in air cargo, for those that are not dedicated freighters, obviously. So that will take some of the pressure off. Thank you, Neil. Next up, I'll be exploring what these trends look like from the trading coal face, particularly from a US and Asia perspective, when I'm joined by two of the world's leading ocean freight forwarders. But for now, Mike Wackett, Lodestar Sea Freight Correspondent, and Neil Wilson, TAC Index Editor. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar Podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast Forwarder Roundtable, although I suppose it's more of a triangle because... I'm joined today by two of the big hitters of Ocean Freight Forwarding. They're both coming at this with a weight of experience that's pretty hard to match, I would say. First up, calling in from the US, from the famous Ocean Freight Mecca that is Indianapolis, no less, is someone who's been a star performer in forwarding for over 30 years, including holding senior positions at three of the biggest forwarders, Kunra Nagel, DHL and DB Schenker. She is currently head of Ocean Freight for the Americas at Renus Logistics. It's Stephanie Loomis. Hello, Steph. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Welcome back. And joining us, we have a similarly talented forwarding practitioner who's held senior Ocean Freight positions at LF Logistics, Agility Logistics, Flexport, and Maersk. 
He's the current head of global ocean freight product at Visi Global Logistics, and he's located in Singapore. It's Peter Sundara Swamikanu. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Mike, for having me, and it's very excited to be included in this popular Big Chat series together with Stephanie. Okay, so today we'll be uh, basing what we're looking at based on where you are yourselves and your areas of expertise. So we're really going to be looking at both ends of this trans-Pacific ocean supply chain and that more general macroeconomic general trading environment in the US and Asia. And I guess there's only one place to start. It's the peak season. Have we had one? Are higher volumes coming or have they come and gone? How did it look from both of your respective viewpoints? Peter? Thanks. That's a very fantastic question, uh, Mike. When you talk about peak, right, uh, usually we symbolize it or we represent it by the traditional peak where the volume will ramp up in July. And then you got August, September having the busiest month. And then the volume will taper off, especially during the golden week. We don't see that this year. So traditionally, in my books, there is no peak. The volume pickup has been very, very slow and very volatile. And the fact that the vessels are light can easily be symbolized by the number of calls that I receive as a shipper from the shipping lines, from the Chinese coal loaders, from the Vietnamese coal loaders. Never before, right? Calls and emails, all indicating there is no traditional peak this time around. And what is more important is also is that um, I was in Vietnam three weeks ago. The shippers, the customers I met, are not in urgent need of moving their cargo. They're waiting for the lowest rate in the market and then they move the cargo. So there's no urgency. And when I ask them, look, when do you see the market recovering? They say, Peter, we do not see the market recovering anytime soon. It's going to be at least late as 2024. So overall, there's no peak. Customers are not so determined or urgent to move their cargoes forward. They are waiting to get the best rates. And it only reflects the demand in the US is weak. The stock inventory destocking is not happening. Like what the carriers say will happen is not happening. So overall, I do not see the peak this time around, Mike. Steph, what's the viewpoint from you? Did you see any sort of early peak even? You know, I'm careful to compare. You know, one of the things I think that trips people up is comparing volumes to last year, which we all know was an extremely unique, if not once in a generation, once in a lifetime event. I would agree with Peter. There really was no peak. You know, August, well, there's peak in the sense there's a month that carried more volume than any other. And that was August. We just got out of what I would call the peak month, but which was the first month we've seen over 2 million TEUs in the U.S., but I agree. Peter put it very well. Peak is usually a season, not a month. It usually involves the ramp up. It starts maybe in late June, early to mid-July. It moves up. And then usually August and September are the peak months. And then it starts to fade off into October. And that's just not at all what we're seeing. We had one big pop of not even that great a volume in August, and that's really it. I, I would agree. I don't think 2023 had a peak season. Very much a damp squib then. Peter, in this tepid market, we've seen carriers trying to limit spot rate declines with void and blank sailings, which has made it things quite tricky for supply chain planners to a degree. Although, surprisingly, given recent spot rate downturns, according to Alpha Line, ahead of the Golden Week holidays at the start of October, We've got significantly less blank schedule this year than we would normally see, especially on this Trans-Pacific lane. How do you think carriers are currently managing capacity and how is this impacting shippers and forwarders? That's a good question, uh, Mike. I look at some statistics that Dury put forward, right? If you look at the major east-west trade lanes, Trans-Pacific eastbound, Trans-Atlantic westbound, and the Asia, North Europe, and MAT, they have cancelled 45 cancelled sellings around between week 36 which is around 4th September to 10th of September, and week 40, which is about 2nd October to 8th of October. 45 cancel sailings against 665 scheduled sailings. That's only 7% cancellation, which is amazing. The numbers is amazing. So it wonders, you have weak demand. Confidence level is very, very low. Inflation is high. Why aren't the carriers cancelling more vessels? And the more new bills are coming in. So... It is a, a, a contrast for many of us, right? Uh, we expect the carriers to go through a massive reduction or massive blank sailing cancellation, but they're not doing it. The only thing I can think of is that they, why they're not doing it in a great scale is because they still have a tiny bit hope 
that could be a last surge of cargo towards the golden week period. I think that's the reason why they're holding it back. And my warning to shippers and freight forwarders is be careful. If the cares are going to do that, you're going to be in deep trouble because you're going to rush for your space, you're going to rush for your containers, you won't have any contingency measure. That, that's my take. That's the only viable explanation I've heard. Steph, have you got a different take on it? <laughs> you know, I've watched this now for for several months. And when you look at the individual numbers, they seem pretty, pretty massive. You know, when you're thinking this is peak season, usually there's almost nothing blanked, almost nothing canceled. And in this case, I just, I think the carriers have done too little too late. And since they didn't make some bigger adjustments earlier in the market when it was clear that volumes were going to be very, very soft. Now they're just in a constant chasing because obviously they they usually blank out 30 days out, maybe 60 days out. And I agree with Peter. I think there's a constant hope that somehow these forecasts are going to change because clearly their largest customers are giving them forecasts. They're just really hoping that all of a sudden Target's going to say, oh, wait, we forgot. There's <laughs> there's 100,000 more containers we need to move. I, I just, I don't see that happening. And unfortunately, the carriers are really on their back foot and, and they just can't seem to, to get things balanced. What happens after Golden Week then? Where do rates go from there? Oh, I mean, I think it could get brutal. For all intents and purposes, today is September 5th. On the 1st, before I left for the holiday weekend, we were already seeing amendments flying through taking out the September 1 GRI. So they've got nothing out of the September 1. I think they are very, very close to seeing a lot of the improvements from the August GRIs going away. There has been this pattern over the summer of the GRIs coming in at the beginning of the month and then they've been whittled away through the rest of the month. Is that right? That's correct. I agree with what Stephanie just mentioned. Yes, they had a bit of success in early August. But then middle of August onwards, the GR didn't work. And if you look at the latest April levels, they have reduced the rates both on the West Coast and on the East Coast. And Mike, to your point, after Golden Week, it's anybody's guess. Unless there's a massive reduction of capacity, you do not see the rates stabilizing or even going up. I'm not convinced, that, you know, part of them amping up the spot rates during peak season is that they want spot rates to be higher than the contract rates. They don't want to get grief from their largest customers that small accounts are paying less than they are. And my fear at this point is I don't think they're even going to be able to hold the spot rates above the contract levels. Unless, like Peter said, unless there is a massive removal of capacity and there's been no indication that that's coming. Steph, have people in the U.S. misjudged inventory levels? And, and I want to quote Jason Miller at Michigan State University. He said, obviously, we've got weak demand, but the inventory drawdowns have just not really happened. And he says at the moment, the U.S. is experiencing the largest inventory correction cycle in modern economic history as import-centric wholesale and retail trade firms right-size inventories. And he says for things like the toy industry, we're looking at another nine or 12 months before we've had this right-sizing. Are, are the carriers misjudging this or did we all just misjudge it? I think it started with the purchasing departments and a lot of consumer retail industries misjudging it when they figured we'd keep buying sofas over and over and over every year. But yes, I think everyone has misjudged what's happening here. I think, you know, Jason has, has fantastic data. The man is just the king of being able to crunch data. And he shows very clearly where certain inventories are worse than others. Fashion is obviously way overloaded because we went from wearing sweatpants to having to go back to, to work or wanting to wear nicer clothes. And then too much leisure apparel was left over. So there's hangover stock everywhere. And I think, yes, the carriers presumed that the retailers would restock regardless. And that's not happening. We were talking earlier in this podcast about Halloween paraphernalia and even Christmas decorations appearing in the shops now. Is this just last year's stock? Yeah, I think so. That stuff's pretty easy to, to turn over, right? A Christmas light's a Christmas light. A scary monster in your yard is the same. I just want it banned until like the start of December. I... 
Yeah. So in addition to what Stephanie has mentioned, we also need to look at the sudden increase of LCL shipments moving from Asia to the US because that is an indication you're overstocked. Customers wants to only book in a small parcel. So the LCL colors are doing very well, all right? Especially on this particular lane and also other trade lanes. People move in smaller volumes. Smaller volumes, yes, exactly. Okay, let's just throw uh, a left field factor that might disrupt things a little bit. We've heard a lot about low water on the Panama Canal. It's supposed to last into next year. It's, it's the El Nino effect. How is this affecting U.S. importers? Is it something you're planning around, Steph? Are you expecting more sewers routings, which of course has that benefit of taking ships out of the market because of the longer transit? Or is this all a little bit overblown because container ships seem to be given priority on the Panama locks at the moment? Yeah, I think this was pretty overblown. You know, here we are coming off of the most chaotic, disruptive, traumatic experience we've ever had. And I think people were looking for that next black swan event and making a bigger deal out of the Panama Canal than it was. This is obviously a significant, serious issue. I question whether we will remain getting that priority if we've got bulk vessels and tankers that they're waiting for days and days and days. We may see some shifting because this is not going away. Like you said, they're expecting this is going to go well into 2024. But yeah, the short term, we've seen very little impact on the schedule, on the reliability, the services, the schedules. And surprisingly, we've seen very few carriers shift away to the Suez Canal, which I would have expected. I think people are trying to compare this with the, the Black Swans we had during the COVID, where port congestion happened. I know port congestion happens in many places, but to happen at the same time, it was unique. That happened in COVID. And together with the Suez Canal saga with Evergreen, so that created major, major issues. And there wasn't much alternative. But if you look at Panama Canal, it's an isolated case. There's an alternative. Every port are functioning pretty normal. And you can have many alternatives to route your cargo through the West Coast or through Swiss. So it's not a major challenge for shippers like myself. And we are not in a hurry to move our cargo. So like what Stephanie, I agree with her, it's not a major crisis. I think what we saw during COVID from a media point of view is the non-trade press massively expanded its coverage of supply chains. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they all need a black swan. <laughs> <laughs> they miss talking about us. You know what news desks are like? You need to come up with a story. So I think we understand what's going on in Panama Canal. Yeah, it's a free publicity for Panama Canal. People now know where is Panama Canal. Yeah, exactly. I've got my children asking me about the different transit times between Panama and Suez. I was like, kids, get a life. <laughs> Good one, mate. Peter, over in Asia, we've had uh, this year, we've had disappointing export levels. And in China, the general economy is performing far below the levels we all expected once we saw the back of COVID lockdowns. We're now seeing the likes of Nomura predicting that the exports downturn might have bottomed out. But as we've just been discussing, the demand indicators are great. What's your take on this? Yeah, actually, it's a very sad situation in China at the moment. I mean, if you recall, right, after a very rapid spread of activity earlier this year, especially when the Chinese government lifted up the COVID restriction, it was a sudden surge of cargo, but then the, the growth started stalling. There were a couple of reasons, right? You have the outbreak of the Russian-Ukraine war that had an impact on inflation. And then you see the real export out from China was declining and unemployment, especially the youth, started increasing. So the confidence level of the Chinese populace and the government has really gone down. And now you have an issue of property companies not paying their interest. So the whole climate has turned to sour. So because of that, you're absolutely right. The banks have now predicted China is going to grow less than 5% this year, right? which is very, very disappointing because everybody's waiting for China to be the driver for growth, right? And it's not going to happen. And if you look at the latest statistics from the exports from routers, August, the export rates has fallen by 9.2% as against the same year last year. But in July, it was 14.5%. So that goes to your point, Mike, that are we seeing a bottom-up? But if, if we go back to the previous point that we mentioned, there's no export coming out. The, there's massive capacity of manufacturing in China. Factories are not working. Some of them, we can hear unemployment getting on. So we don't see a prospects out from China. It's not bottoming up. There's real no demand out from China. And the domestic demand is not there. People have no confidence. People are saving more because of the uncertainty in the future. How important is the whole China plus plus sourcing changes? This is creating a bit of doom and gloom in China. I mean, there's a lot of geopolitical background to this as well, which I won't go through now, but FDI into China is down. 
And this is creating opportunities elsewhere in Asia for companies and countries. Are these trends that will accelerate in, in your view, Peter? Yeah, yeah. It's a, good, it's a good question again, Mike. You know, the China plus one strategy came into the forefront, especially during the COVID. People say they don't rely too much on China. Let's have some backup. That's fine. So you see some of the factories move to Vietnam, Thailand, India, Indonesia, and even to Philippines and Malaysia to some extent. And some of the sourcing started to happen in Vietnam and also from India. So it started going up. But my concern is the following, right? China has been the world's factory place for almost two decades, three decades, right? They have a fantastic ecosystem. The quality of the product they produce is amazing. They have a fantastic infrastructure. Your ports are very efficient. Your infrastructure is efficient, right? Overnight, you cannot expect places like Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, India to have the same level of productivity and port efficiency and line-side operation. And more importantly, the ability to expand your capacity in terms of production when it's needed. China has that, but not the other countries. They are not there yet. It will take another 20, 30 years down the road. So having said that, yes, there's things happening, but I think we are overblowing it because it was one of the latest articles from GOC clearly mentioned. What is happening now is that some of these countries like Vietnam and Thailand are now being your staging area. They still import the raw materials from USA, put in the raw materials in your final product, and then the final product goes into the US. It's a high cost. So the inflation is increasing due to this outsourcing program that you're trying to do. All right. So it's defeating the purpose. That's my view. All right. Yeah. Go ahead, Stephanie. Totally agree. I think hysteria drives hysterical responses, right? And we had a, a obviously what China did by locking down the economy for however many months it was, created a lot of panic in large U.S. importers and manufacturers. And most importantly, it had already gotten all the way up to the CEO level and the CFO level that there were supply chain issues. And now we have China locking down. So that was pushed down to procurement and purchasing, saying, that's it. We are not relying on China anymore. You need to push them. Well, they don't really understand the not only the industry, but like Peter said, the infrastructure in China does not exist anywhere else in the world. And it will not happen. Do I think that China will lose some percentage of volume over the years? Sure, absolutely. But India was supposed to be this fantastic supplier base many, many years ago. And it didn't happen because they don't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the manufacturing set up. Their port structure is not good. So all of these things, I think, are going to slowly increase sourcing out of different countries. But China will still be the overwhelming manufacturer of the world. I don't think that will change. If anything, people will test the market other places, realize the cost is higher, realize the headaches are, are more, and they'll bring product back to China. You know, Mexico, I think Latin America is probably the one for the Americas, is the one area that is potentially huge because of just its proximity to the United States. So you're not buying this idea of ally shoring or friend shoring then. It's just that's not going to have any legs. Is that what we're saying? It all comes down to the almighty dollar. Yeah, obviously, if the U.S. says you are no longer allowed to import from some country, that would be different. But I don't see that happening. I think people have their eyes wide open about China and they'll not see China the same way. But the sourcing is still going to happen from there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Stephanie, right? At the end of the day, any manufacturer or any customer always look for resilience in their supply chain. Yes, there will be China plus one policy, but the amount of the, the percentage of volume coming out from China or the sourcing of the raw materials is still going to be high. It will reduce one or two percent, but China will still remain because it has the X factor that others don't have. Let's turn back to the US or North America, we may, Steph. Over the course of 2023, we've had labor disruption on the U.S. West Coast and in Canada, mostly pretty much resolved now. But we have got union docker talks on the East Coast underway, and there's been a lot of saber rattling there. Oh, there sure has. What's your take on that, Steph? I have never in my lifetime seen labor in such a powerful position really everywhere around the globe. I just heard recently that union membership is up the highest percentage that it's been, I think, since like the 60s. So there's obviously a lot of things in the union's favor, in the ILA's favor right now for them to 
get a good deal, push management, push the carriers, push the terminals to pay some big dividends here. But I think more than anything, you also have the competition among the unions. There's no way that Daggett's going to allow these great deals to be made on the West Coast and in Canada and not get something similar. So he's even trying to push it up a notch by saying absolutely no automation. And that for me is where I have a problem. I think it is saber rattling. I think everybody knows we need automation in this country as it relates to the ports because we only have so much space to grow. But if I were an importer along the eastern seaboard, I'd be nervous. I think we're going to see some pretty nasty disruptions happening with either slowdowns, a potential strike cap. You know, I think anything's possible at this point. When I look at that supply chain into the US, Steph, we've got Intermodal costs are down. We've got in slightly improved liner schedule reliability. It's almost like the, the whole COVID era is, is over. But is this union dispute, is that what you're looking on as potential disruptor as we're looking forward? Yeah, I, like I said, I think especially after what we watched the West Coast go through, it took a year for all intents and purposes to get that result. I don't know that I think the ILA will last that long, but I don't think it's going to be an easy negotiation. I think there's going to be a lot of walking away and things being put on hold. The ILA is traditionally a little bit more contentious even than the ILWU, as far as the president there is pretty well known for being outspoken. <laughs> so I think he's going to line his troops up to, to say we need to make we need to make some waves because they can't do it. There's not enough volume coming for them to potentially cause issues with just slowdowns. They're going to have to do some things that are a little bit more significant for them to make an impact. But you're right. All the, you know, costing is down. Things are flowing pretty well. But, you know, the New York, New Jersey can bog up pretty fast. It doesn't take much for that port to get buried in containers. So if I were an importer, I would have some contingency plans. Put in place. Well, as I said earlier, I mean, we all need a black swan, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Certainly one to watch, which is what we'll be doing on this podcast and what we'll be doing on the lodestar.com. Let's uh, look a little bit further ahead, maybe not necessarily at black swans. Can you give me some reasons why ocean markets and trade in general could improve in the future? Where are the positives in terms of national policies, regional policies, macroeconomics, trade deals? Peter, do you want to go first? I'm a quite optimistic person, so I look for all the positive signs out in the market, right? One of the things I see in a great deal is that the growth of intra-Asia and also Asia into India, subcontinent. That trade is really growing. Intra-Asia is growing because as companies started sourcing from Vietnam or other locations, China factories relocating to new emerging markets in Southeast Asia, you still have to move your raw materials from China. That's one. Number two, you see very strong movements from China into India because India is still importing a lot of construction materials, solar panels. And the other positive things I really like is about the electric vehicle, the EVs, all right? You can see plants have been coming up in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, servicing the market of Europe and America by investment coming from China. So there are a lot of positive aspects in that area. The other positive aspect I see is obviously Saudi Arabia and UAE, all right? As you know, the government is investing billions of dollars in building logistic plants. So you will see in the future, Asia to Middle East, trade improving tremendously, and also India into Africa and Middle East. These are where the booming markets are going to be, in my view. Overall, these are the positive signs. I see countries still having bilateral relationships. And the fact that now China, due to this micro-political situation, they are putting in more investment into their road and belt policies and investing in other markets which are not aligned to USA, is a positive aspect, and that's going to improve the trade going forward. And that's the positive element from the ocean freight perspective. Okay, Peter, I'll come to Steph for our upsides and downsides in a second. But as you've been so positive, tell us what's plaguing your nightmares. Where's the <laughs> downside risk? Okay, okay. Obviously, the, the geopolitical climate is still a downside for me. I don't know when the Russian-Ukraine war is going to end. That's a major issue because that's affecting inflation. People are not buying. People are saving more and more, all right? The other major concern, like what Stephanie has mentioned, is this industrial relationship crisis everywhere, right? Everywhere someone is having some kind of strike, whether it's transport strike, port strike, because inflation is eating into their wallet. That's my major concern because when that happens, your land side and your port side operation get affected. The other concern I have is basically the huge capacity that's coming in. 
when the huge capacity come in, okay, I I met one of these uh, vessel operation contacts in one of the major carriers, right? And he tells me every day their challenge is where to put the vessels, all right? Both the existing vessel and the incoming vessel, that's their challenge. They don't know where to put it in. So you can see when the new capacity comes in, it's going to disrupt the schedule, a lot of blank sailings, and there's no reliability at all. And that's my concern from a shipper's point of view, because I'm putting forward a reliable service, a supply chain to my end customers. If the schedules are unreliable, my whole supply chain is going to be disrupted. That's another concern. The other concern is decarbonization. That is going to add on to cost because this methanol and this LNG are not cheap. It's going to add on to cost and the carriers are going to pass the cost to the end customer. So it's going to add more to cost. And the final concern I have is the impact of the 2M breakup and the M&A issues that are coming up in the continental shipping because that's going to impact the entire alliance structure and who your partner is going to be and who you're going to work with. So there are some nightmares for me which keeps me awake in the night. Over to you, Stephanie. Those were some good ones. So let me start with nightmares and then we can end on a positive if I can think of some. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with Peter that the new builds are, are a positive and a negative. I mean, it's good that we are moving technologically into vessels that are going to run cleaner fuels. And this is all good for the environment. My children are, you know, in their early 20s, they want clean air. So that I think is a positive, but the carriers are not scrapping enough old capacity and they got to ramp that up. Or in my opinion, 2024, it could end up being another bloodbath as far as very low rate levels, very low contract rates. I don't think that volumes are going to come back until probably peak season of 2024. And even then, I wonder how strong they will be because, you know, the U.S. consumer is just taxed. They're still feeling the effects of buying too much stuff. And then they went and they spent way too much money on experiences this year. You know, buku trips and and concert tickets that are outrageously expensive. Credit card debt is going up. People aren't even paying the, the credit cards. And then we have starting next month, the college student debt repayment plan goes back in effect, which for lower income, middle income couples is going to be is going to be problematic. I think this coming holiday season spending is going to be very, very bad. The other negatives we had touched on, obviously, the ILA. I think that overall, the Ukraine war has got to come to some sort of resolution, I hope, in 2024, because I think it has larger impacts on the entire global supply chain than we realize. I think Europe is not going to really come back as far as both imports from Asia as well as outbound to the U.S. until that war brings inflation down on the continent. So on the positive side, I would say next year will be better. There will be some restocking. I think even if they don't sell enough at Christmas, they're going to bring new volumes in next year. But, you know, it's probably a year out before things get really strong again. And for me personally, living in the Americas, I'm very excited about the growth in Latin America. We have a very strong office structure down there and the activity and the excitement and just the intensity of that market is it's really cool. It's it's very exciting. This might be a reflection of where we are all located in different places. No one mentioned COVID there unless I missed it. In the UK at the moment, we're getting, oh, there's a new variant coming. We might even have lockdowns. And I must admit, I should have loads more information, but I might be the only journalist who started to avoid the media. So I can't read the stories yeah. and get too worried <laughs> about it. But are you getting that over in Singapore, in the US? Like, oh, there might be a new lockdown. Is that just not appearing? Is this a UK phenomenon? For Singapore and Asia, yes, obviously, COVID is, you can hear cases of COVID coming here and there. But I think people got adjusted to it. No matter what variants they come through, I think they know how to handle it. All right. I'll give you an example. One of my colleagues is down with COVID. She knows how to handle it. She's like a Panadol, rest at home. She recovers in two or three days. So I think we got used to how to manage COVID. So we are not too overly concerned unless there's a new variant and, and that is going to be very severe and it's going to impact everybody but we do not see that yet in this part of the world. Yeah. And come on, in the United States, 
<laughs> there will never be a lockdown in the United States ever again. Thanks to the political climate here, that's not happening. No, I don't think it is either. I'm not sure if people here will go ahead with a lockdown either. I think there'll be a bit of resistance. Stephanie Loomis, head of Ocean Freight for the Americas at Renus Logistics, and Peterson Daraswama Kanu, head of Global Ocean Freight Product at VC Global Logistics. Thanks both for joining me today on the Lodestar Podcast. Our pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Great fun. Thank you, Mike. I'd like to thank TAC Index and Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenitor, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. 